1: It's in the Scottish Government's interest not just to protect obviously, public services but also to show further divergence from the rest of the UK.
2: It does show
3: the sort of strain that the market is under this winter. The other factor playing into all this is Brexit. Neither political party will even contemplate relaxing EU migration. This is the elephant in the room, isn't it?
1: You're listening to Bloomberg UK Politics. I'm Ewan Potts.
4: And I'm Stephen Carroll. Welcome to the programme. It's Valentine's Day, unrelated to anything else. Um, And I was thinking of treating myself to lunch but apparently I'm the only one. <laughs> this is according to some data from the ONS showing that people are, because of the cost of living crisis, not spending money anymore on their lunches when it comes to uh, shopping certainly in the main mm. business districts and instead they are making their own lunches and bringing yes. them to work. That strikes me like the sort of thing that you do.
1: Well, do you say that. It's certainly something that I used to do My in my ultra-budgeting days. I always brought sandwiches into the office and people would take the mickey somewhat. Listeners should know that
4: Ewan is an arch-budgeter. I mean, Jeremy Hunt should be calling him, frankly, to find out some tips on how to save some money. These days,
1: it's not so much that I don't budget anymore, but because I start so early at 4 o'clock, the, the one one upside of starting early is that you get to leave at lunchtime, so it also saves on buying lunch.
4: Noted. Good. Top, t- <laughs> top tips from Ewan. Shift work. Start early. Um, indeed. Um, let me take you also, Ewan, on a journey to the
1: past. Um, what do you remember about 1989? Oh, I'm far too young to remember anything about 1989. Guess. Um, um, 1989, I was a very tiny child. Indeed. Right, OK, look, I'll I'll give you the answer. This is the latest statistics
4: about the number of days lost to strikes. Uh, Two and a half million working days lost to strikes last year. Um, That is for the six-month period for the second half of the year, and that is the worst since 1989-1990, towards the end of Margaret Thatcher's time as Prime Minister. Mm. We heard plenty of comparisons about the latest wave of industrial action and exactly how bad it is,
1: uh, and lots of comparisons to that period of time, and it looks like the data is finally backing it up. Yeah, of course, it was actually the final year of uh, Margaret Thatcher's time in office, uh, 1990. Of course, there were far more strikes in the early 80s with the miners dispute and many, many others, but yeah, uh, they are certainly ticking up at the moment. And more to come. Lucky us. This is, of course, after the (laughs) RMT union
4: rejected another pay offer for rail workers at the end of last week, so the prospect of more train strikes uh, on the way as well. Um, Let's turn, though, to some other data that we had out today, which is to do with the latest on jobs and particularly on wages. Average earnings rising quicker than expected at the end of 2022. So wages up 6.7% in those three months uh, to December. That's compared to the previous year.
1: Yeah, it's another sign that the UK's labour market remains tight and it's going to add more pressure on the Bank of England to deliver another rate hike next month. Lizzie Burden, our UK correspondent, is here with us. Uh, Lizzie, now, I know Valentine's Day, one of your favourite days, and you also love economic data. It's true, and
3: I have to tell you that the jobs data is my favourite economic data because there's lots of it.
1: Break down the numbers for us.
3: Well, the labour market is still tight. It means we're still in the danger zone for the Bank of England. Wages, as you say, Stephen, rose faster than expected. It's actually the fastest pace on record outside the pandemic, but it's still not as fast as inflation's going up. So people can't enjoy the pay rises that they're getting if they're getting them. Unemployment stayed at 3.7% percent. So it's close to all time lows. And we heard from the Chancellor Jeremy Hunt saying in tough times, unemployment staying close to record loads is an encouraging sign of the resilience in our labour market. But if you look at the data more closely, the UK is the only major industrialised economy where employment has yet to recover to pre-COVID levels. So I'm not sure that this is as rosy as he making
4: it up I mean, to be. It's worth saying that, of course, we get the update on inflation tomorrow. Inflation expected to be 10.3%, according to our survey of economists, uh, for the month of January. Um, so so people, if, even if you are getting your 6.7% pay rise, the gap is still pretty large. Um, what, to, what does that mean for the Bank of England, for example. How how is that going to make their job more difficult or easier, perhaps?
3: Well, we know that companies are passing on the higher wage bills via higher prices, so it maintains the upward pressure on inflation. That data tomorrow on inflation is expected to show that price growth is still in double digits, even if we're past the peak of inflation. And the Monetary Policy Committee is especially going to be watching services inflation for this pass on effect. Now, there is a fantastic function let me nerd out for a moment, on the terminal called WIRP, whoop. And you go on that and you can see how rate expectations have changed. And I was interested to see how this data had changed expectations for the March meeting. It's even more likely that you get a rate hike in March now. Markets also see a rate hike in June, but they're only going to be 25 basis points this time. Economists are a bit more split than markets. Some of them think that you're going to have one last rate hike. Others reckon that you'll get two more.
1: I've now gone to Warp Go on the terminal in this, in this nerd... It's a very satisfying ner- function to say out loud as warp well. Warp Go. Yeah. Warp Go. Is this a nerd-off? Are we like nerding off <laughs> yes, on, on we the are. terminal? Yes, Please, let's move on. Uh, well, I, I want to give you some nerdy fact from Warp Go. Uh, so, markets reckon peak rate of UK interest rates will be 4.5%. Am I reading that right, Lizzie? In August. But I think it'll also get to that uh, shortly before that as well. So, there we are. Interest rate production, 4.5% by... Uh, August. Let's look ahead a bit closer than that. Let's look ahead to the budget, uh, which is a month tomorrow. Uh, Jeremy Hunt has not got a lot of wiggle room, has he?
3: No, And this data from today really focuses, validates his focus on inflation. It's also interesting to see in this data the impact of strikes. 843,000 days were lost to industrial action. It's the highest since 2011. And you can actually break down the wage growth. So private sector wages went up 7.3%, but it was only 4.2% for the public sector, even if the gap between them narrowed. So really eye-watering. It gives ammo to the unions and, of course, puts pressure on the Chancellor to pay them off at the budget. The Trade Union Congress, in response to this data, said workers have been pushed to breaking point. The Tories are putting far more energy into attacking the right to strike than actually resolving the disputes. The other two quick points that I'd make in terms of the implications of this data for the Chancellor are, first of all, there'll be more pressure to boost productivity because this data shows an hour of work produced 0.4% more output last year uh, than in 2021, sorry, less output, which doesn't bode well for living standards. And finally, the good news is people are actually coming back to work out of inactivity, especially students riding to the rescue. And that was something that Mel Stride, the uh, Work and Pension Secretary, has been looking at in his Stride review. I'd expect lots of emphasis on skills and measures to keep bringing down this hole in, well, sh- shrinking this hole in. In the labour market, yeah,
1: because that's that's a big problem in the UK, isn't it? Is this these missing workers who haven't returned uh, after COVID?
3: It affects uh, inflation and it also affects growth. Two of Sunak's top five priorities.
1: One of the things when we
4: look at this wage data as well, I mean, you broke it down there between the public and private sector uh, wage increases as well. I mean. Does it add fuel to the government's argument that they shouldn't be giving these pay rises that are demanded by unions because of what they see as the effect on inflation?
3: Oh, you put me in a tricky position choosing between the government and the unions. Yes, the government will spin it that way itself. And Jeremy Hunt, in his response to this data, I paraphrase, but essentially said that, this is exactly why we need to be tough on inflation. This is exactly why it's our top priority, because essentially your pay rises, you, you can't enjoy them until we bring it down. Um, yes, you can you can read it two ways.
1: Now, I want to talk to you about working from home. We've all uh, chosen to come into work, come into the office on uh, Valentine's Day, but I think uh, a few people in some offices won't be. A really interesting survey. Uh, Talk to us about this this BI BI data.
3: Yeah, it's really interesting and it's on the terminal. I really, really encourage people to take a look at it. Lots of sexy charts to nerd out at. It says that um, whether there's a recession or big inflation or not, 73% of Londoners say that they would quit if they weren't offered the option to work from home And the highest earners need the biggest pay rises to lure them back into the office. Only 1.1% of the people surveyed feared being laid off or given a puny raise if they refused to return to the office. And a part of the reason why Londoners don't want to go back to the office is the commute time, which is, of course, work with commute time and costs because of strikes and inflation
4: yeah I mean th- this idea that people are essentially using working from home as a bargaining chip at a time when we know that there's so much pressure on employers to pay workers more because of high inflation it's a really interesting dynamic to hear how that's going to feed into you know th- this other symptom of the tight labor market which is that workers do in many situations have more bargaining power uh, and they're choosing to expend it on working from home
3: yeah but it's not just the work from home issue is such a big one because I was actually speaking to um the researchers behind this survey and And it has implications for the gender pay gap as well. If you can boost women's participation in the labour force, um, it it can make sure that we don't have this two-track workforce that the Bank of England's uh, Catherine Mann warned about, where you've got men coming back to the office, making the big decisions, and women staying at home, looking after the kids, and actually the gender pay gap widening. Um, So, you know, there are lots more dynamics to this, it's a complicated one.
1: Well, up next, the controversy over the alleged spy balloons affecting relations between China and the West. We're going to speak to our Asia government reporter, Rebecca June Wilkins from Hong Kong. That's next. This is Bloomberg UK Politics.
0: The countdown has begun. From May 14th to 16th, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg.
1: You're listening to Bloomberg UK Politics. I'm Stephen Parrell. And I'm Ewan Potts. This is your daily guide to the corridors of power. Now, relations with China are back in focus after the US shot down what it called a Chinese spy balloon over the South Carolina coast leading to another three objects being targeted over North America over the course of the last week or so. So what does this mean for the UK's relationship with China? And is it just another foreign policy headache for the Prime Minister Rishi Sunak? Joining us now from Hong Kong is our Asia government reporter, Rebecca Chun-Wilkins. Rebecca, thanks so much uh, for joining us on the show. Now, uh, we'll get to the UK-China relations in a moment. Can you just bring us up to date with uh, the the, the prospects of a face-to-face meeting between uh, two of the top diplomats in the US and China.
2: Yes. So we may now be seeing a meeting between US Secretary of State Antony Blinken and China's sort of top diplomatic envoy Wang Yi. Um, We have this nice scoop from our US colleagues um, that that Blinken uh, is considering a possible meeting with Wang Yi if Wang Yi agrees, um, essentially on the sidelines of the security conference. So there's a security conference in Munich and we know both leaders um, are confirmed to be attending. Pending. That's February seventeenth to the nineteenth, so it could just be in a matter of days. Um, I mean, of course, nothing confirmed so far, um, and I, I think it's unlikely that we see anything really substantive uh, or concrete emerge from a meeting, but in and of itself the meeting may offer something of a detente because of course blinken had cancelled his trip to beijing uh, as a result of uh, the sort of this incident over the balloon that was flying over montana and then later taken down
4: Okay, so that's what we're watching in terms of the developments in US-China relations. Of course, this story about balloons making waves in British politics as well. We've heard from the Defence Secretary, Ben Wallace, has ordered a security review. Uh, The junior minister, Richard Holden, saying that it was possible that spy balloons had been deployed across Britain's airspace as well. Kind of more broadly, what do we know about these kind of surveillance programmes?
2: Well, the U.S. has been very public about what it claims to know about China's uh, surveillance program. And so it actually places this balloon that it found you know, in its airspace in, in this much broader context of a global years-long surveillance program by China um, that spanned more than 40 countries. And that includes uh, 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 balloons traveling over Europe too. So we're looking at something that is, is really global in scale. Um, I mean, China has long been developing this sort of technology, which in and of itself is, is sort of quite an old-fashioned technology. Uh, decades ago, at the Chinese Academy of Sciences, we saw uh, from an academic point of view the development of balloon technology. But in more recent years, China has focused um, quite specifically on this idea of near space, which it considers to be a separate domain, and essentially advances its military capacity in that near space domain so balloons are a part of that and balloons also uh, for a country like China which doesn't necessarily have that sort of the same satellite uh, technology that say the US does that balloons offer a very cheap and quite effective uh, for what it is an alternative uh, to satellites because they're relatively cheap to send up into the air and until now uh, they have been you know relatively uh, sort of under the radar relatively unreported.
1: Rebecca, I want to get your thoughts on where we're at with, with China policy in the UK. It has been, I think, rather uh, all over the place over the last few years. Rishi Sunak uh, calling China a systemic challenge with the words he used at the, uh, the back end of, of, of last year. Where are we at the moment with that?
2: Yes, absolutely. Well, in some ways, the UK, like the US, has seen sort of somewhat of a fundamental shift uh, in, in parliament uh, towards taking a more hawkish stance on China. Um, although sort of actual policy pronouncements have been somewhat fuzzy, we do see this consensus moving Just to jump on. I mean, the other thing I suppose is although we're very firmly past that golden era sort of moment um, David Cameron heralding China ties the question of how the UK responds is still sort of up in the air because on the one hand you have this question of access to strategic tech like is China going to continue is the UK going to continue to allow China to access its strategic tech is it going to give it uh, uh, allow Chinese firms to take contracts over more sensitive projects for example but the other question is whether the UK... UK takes a more proactive stance and engages in the kind of economic statecraft that we have seen, for example, the US take and and some of the US partners and allies like Japan and the Netherlands, where in actual fact, they're engaging in forms of sanctions or forms of export controls that are actually aimed at, perhaps you could argue, alienating China. Um, And so there are these sort of two key areas that the UK could could approach this from.
4: Surely that's more of a risk, though, for the UK to engage in that sort of behaviour than the United States. The United States might be able to replace uh, some of its supply chains around China, but for a much smaller country and economy like the UK, it's, it's a much bigger challenge.
2: Certainly, that is that, and remains the, the issue. I mean, the US has pushed for this to be a much more sort of multilateral approach. And I, I suppose the other question is with the UK no longer part of the European Union, the UK sort of negotiating heft has shifted.
1: Talk, talk us through the different approaches that the UK is taking to, to its European neighbors, when it, European neighbors when it comes to relations with China.
2: Well, Europe has long sought this sort of so-called middle path between the US and China. It's really resisted um, being pulled into competing blocks. And we have seen Schultz visit Beijing, of course, the first European uh, leader to visit Beijing uh, since the pandemic. Um, Macron has also called for a re-engagement with China. Um, and to some extent, that's partly to do with the essential trade ties, but they have resisted very much being drawn into um, some of the measures that the US has has been pushing for, for example. On the other hand, there has been somewhat of a sort of soul-searching and we saw this particularly with that Schultz visit um, around whether engagement with China can actually result in the outcomes that Europe has sought. um, For example, I mean, China has continued down an authoritarian path. It is now and this put Europe in its very uncomfortable position with its, you know, quote unquote, no limits friendship with Russia in particular. And the old issue of human rights, China's human rights track record continues to plague a lot of European leaders. And now we see, for example, the Netherlands stepping in to enforce some of those export controls on chips with China too. So we do see Europe sort of shifting somewhat. Um, The UK, will though has had quite a sort of sharp rhetoric on China, hasn't quite sort of matched that in terms of policy so far. It is worth saying, though, the UK uh, is one of the only, if not the only country that has so far responded to these allegations of China's global surveillance program. Uh, No other country, as far as we know, has publicly declared, for example, that they're going to conduct a review on surveillance of, of its airspace and potential use of balloons even though the US has been quite sort of uh, open about saying that it's talking to partners and other countries it's believed targeted by this programme.
4: Has China responded to that in any way or have we, do we have any recent indications uh, from the Chinese authorities as to how they're feeling about the UK?
2: Well, we did put a question to China's foreign ministry uh, in uh, during a daily briefing this week. Um, and China's position is that Uh, countries such as the UK should refrain from hyping up this incident. So China has maintained throughout, it's worth mentioning, that the the balloon that was discovered over uh, the US is a civilian balloon that was simply blown, of course. It's largely used to measure uh, the weather. Um, And so, you know, from China's point of view, they've sort of tried to play this down uh, so far.
1: Uh, Rebecca, talk to us about the uh, the visa applications uh, to the UK. Now, the, the Home Office predicts that about three hundred thousand Hong Kongers are going are to come to the the UK. What's the latest on that situation? Is it still causing tensions with with Beijing?
2: Yes, we've seen quite an exodus to um, other countries from Hong Kong, particularly un- and sort of with that younger generation who were more active uh, in the protests, these pro-democracy protests that swept uh, Hong Kong most recently in 2019. That then triggered um, these very sort of very sweeping national security law. Um, I mean, at the moment, I would say Beijing is very firmly focused on these domestic issues, trying to get its economy, you know, back on its sea legs, uh, as well as now managing the fallout of this sort of quite messy situation with the U.S. over the balloon. Um, but for Hong Kong itself, the sort of narrative around expats leaving, as well as locals leaving, has been somewhat of a of a sticking point. And Hong Kong, you know, particularly because it's also so it was locked down for a long period during the pandemic, much longer than the rest of the world. Is sort of now trying to rebrand itself as a global city, and this this sort of point of uh, Hong Kongers, particularly young, skilled, talented Hong Kongers, going to the UK, say, or going to Canada or the US, all of which have extended uh, forms of, um, of uh, immigration proce- processes. Um, it doesn't really jive well with this vision of a global city mm. that you know the Hong Kong government's trying to paint.
4: Okay, Rebecca Chung-Wilkins in Hong Kong. Thank you so much for joining us though, all of that. Great to talk to you again on the programme about that fascinating subject of UK-China relations.
1: Mm, yeah, a couple of other things we're watching out for today. The UK's COVID inquiry holds its first meetings today. Uh, this is something that's been coming along for quite a while. It's looking at how preparedness and resilience uh, in terms of the pandemic and the three-day strike by more than 70,000 staff gets underway at universities across the UK.
4: That's it from us for today. If you like the programme, don't forget to subscribe. Give it five stars so other people can find it on Apple Podcasts, Spotify or wherever you listen. This episode was produced by James Walcock and John Wasserman. I'm Ewan Potts. And I'm Stephen Carroll. We'll be back with more tomorrow. This
1: is Bloomberg. Bloomberg UK Politics. Listen weekdays at noon on DAB Digital Radio in London.
0: The countdown has begun from May 14th to 16th